Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Bridget Laffin. Bridget is the director of the Robert Schumann Center at the European University Institute in Florence. Um, we're going to talk big time, um, Bridget. We're going to talk about the future of Europe from all different directions. This is obviously a critical year, 2019, but arguably every year in the EU's history is a critical year. But a lot of changes this year clearly on the horizon, uh, which you can imagine as well as I can. I'd like you, first of all, to talk about in, in terms of from a member state point of view, uh, a lot of people say that the Franco-German axis has always been key to the future, not just direction of travel, but the degree of intensity of cooperation and integration in Europe uh, in the past. Is that motor still there, functioning and still calling all the shots, as it were, or are there new, are there new alliances in, uh, between other member states who, who don't not necessarily accept the automatic kind of leadership role of the, the French and the Germans? I, I think the first thing I would say is that there are many possible futures for Europe. In right. other words, we're out of time when it's really difficult to determine a, a, a direction of travel. That said, uh, looking across Europe, and I'm assuming for the purposes of our conversation that that is an EU of 27 rather than 28, although right. that's, still an open, that's <laughs> still an open question, uh, what sort of shape? Well, the Eastern enlargement from 2004 onwards, the EU became a very different union because it was continental in scale. The levels of development across Europe were very different to the pre-West European EU. So I think one of the biggest challenges for the EU since 2004 has been how do you manage that level of diversity? How do you hold the system together? Undoubtedly, the Franco-German relationship has always been key. And I would say for two reasons. One, that if they don't agree, then not much can happen without them. So a lot of the Franco-German relationship is about managing difference because their views are very, are very different. Uh, also, they can offer a, if they agree, then other states can coalesce around them. But the Franco-German relationship or tandem or motor as it's called, in and of itself is not enough in an EU of 27. So how do I see the sort of regional, sub-regional EU? Right. I, I would say, firstly, the Mediterranean. These are the countries that have suffered most as a result of the uh, Eurozone crisis. I think Italy remains a very real worry in terms of both its politics and economics. Greece has come through and will slowly refine the future. And the Iberian Peninsula has always managed better than, in my view, either uh, Greece or, or, or Italy. Then moving to the eastern half of the continent, you have the VC Grad 4, but in a way they're not a VC Grad 4, because I think there's quite a difference between the Poles and the Hungarians on the one hand and the others. And then the small Baltic states are very liberal. So I think we shouldn't think of the eastern half of the continent as one block. Right. And then I think the departure of the UK has led to an interesting phenomenon called the, Han the Hansa League, the Hanseatic right. League. Yes. As in anticipation of the UK's departure and a concern about that northern liberal approach that the UK would have been the anchor of, right. then you see the Netherlands moving into this space. 
Ireland has joined it because it clearly, uh, although it was a debtor state during the Eurozone crisis, really does want to be seen as a North European state, which of course it is. And then that goes right across uh, Denmark into into, um, Sweden, Finland and the Baltics. And I think that's again quite an interesting development. Of course, they will disagree as well as agree. And I don't think one can argue that any geographical bloc will drive the future of the EU because the coalitions will also depend. They'll be issue specific. Yeah. Uh, so I, but I think we are looking at an EU that is finding its way into the third decade of the 21st century. Uh, and the member states, one of the impacts of Brexit Uh, I think has been that it has all of the capitals now understand that the polity matters to them, the collective matters. It has forced the EU to confront its own demise Mm. and everyone, at least the political elites, and I'm not talking about the radical right here, but the political elites, the governmental elites have all looked at this and said, no way, not a good idea. And the reason I think for that is, and that's why I think Europe has potentially many futures, is that the future of European integration will not be determined either solely by what happens in Europe. That EU integration, the EU itself, was always very dependent on the kind of world out there. Mm. So the Cold War, the United States, the collapse of communism, all of these big events have had a fundamental impact. When you say that Europe has many futures, do you mean that they are kind of in competition with each other, these different visions, or they can, to a certain extent, coexist, even though there might be some tension between them? Uh, so I, I would have thought that the world beyond Europe is forcing Europe now to be more collective. Right. Whether it is more collective and whether it is more strategic vis-a-vis the rest of the world is an open question. But the pressures on the EU with the change in the in the commitment to the transatlantic idea even yeah. by the United States is yeah. very compelling. That brings defence and security into play. What's happening uh, post the Arab Spring in, in, in the southern shores of the Mediterranean, a disruptive Russia. And again, I'm very struck by the fact that the EU is moving very quickly on its relationship with China. Right. So I think that the pr- pressures out from the outside are forcing the EU to be more strategic. And maybe a bit more sort of grown up on, here's a lot the phrase, the EU is a is an economic giant, but a political pygmy, right? Does that suggest that you're suggesting that they are, they, the, their economic credentials don't need maybe restating or reinforcing without, without neglecting them, but their, the political stance, the political identity of the European Union, this collective action you're talking about, is now being realised by leaders they have to, to prioritise that. Well, I, again, uh, if you think about Ukraine, Russia, the migration crisis, these were all externally driven crises. They were all geopolitical. And the EU did act it held the sanctions against Russia. It hasn't managed to, you know, Ukraine is still in play, the Donbass, uh, but the EU hasn't split, despite all the internal tensions on Russia. And I would also say 
in relation to migration. Um, it lost its political innocence, the EU, when it made the deal with Turkey. Right. And I would regard that as a no-choice deal. Why do I say that? That the, for a very long time, the EU's image of itself was this normative power, yes. value-driven. Yes, exporting those values elsewhere e where exporting, possible. Exporting. If only the world out there was more like <laughs> us, it would be a better world. And I think that's a reasonable claim. It would be a better world. Yeah, yeah. But that's not happening. Right. And so I think the EU is slowly, I think it's it's faced geopolitical shocks. And it suddenly has faced up to the fact that its external borders really do matter. And it can't expect to Others have to free them. movement internally okay. and weak external borders. So again, if thinking about the future where one would see centralization or strengthening of the center, I have argued for the last year that Frontex will become the new ECB. Right. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that it will strengthen. Right. Uh, Not just more manpower, but more more political mandate. Uh, now, of course, it will always be extremely difficult for the member states to share authority for the borders with an EU entity. But on the ground, that's beginning to happen. Right. And at the moment, Frontex is reliant on equipment from the member states and manpower from the member states. If the MF, MFF, the next financial framework, right. gives it its own equipment and its own manpower, then that's another layering of central authority and capacity. So, uh, of course, it won't have um, the power of money in the sense the ECB. So, when I say more like the ECB, I mean more central centralized capacity right. i think would be the best way of putting you, it you touched on earlier brexit and, we'll, and we'll, i want to ask in a moment uh, but not just now about what you think the impact of the uk no longer being a member of the eu which may well happen apparently um, uh, for the rest of the eu but before that as you know when in the aftermath of the referendum in the uk three years ago now um, a lot of pro-europeans rightly said look uh, the rest of the EU has realised it's not a good idea to try and exit the EU, and we haven't had this kind of, despite what some anti-Europeans were, were prophesying, quote-unquote, or certainly hoping for, has not materialised. In other words, other member states joining the queue, like the UK, to, to leave. And therefore, Europe advocates say, we've been vindicated, people realise the EU is a wonderful thing to support, and there are no more people going to the exit door. But on top of that, as you know much better than, than I, I'm sure, there's this view, like not so much a counter view, but another layer of sophistication that um, member states aren't leaving after the UK, but and they're determined to stay, actually, but want, while staying inside the European Union, they will, they will claim the right to be disruptive or to challenge traditional leadership. Uh, is, that, is that an issue going forward for the European Union? Well, I have long thought that the rule of law challenges in Hungary, Poland, and increasingly in Romania are very damaging to the EU. Uh, why do I say that? Because the part of the glue that holds the system together is the rule of law, mm. trust across the member states. Uh, but again, if you think, for example, of a federal state like the United States, uh, there have been tremendous battles between the federation and the states on all sorts of things, including in the 1960s on the question of race. So 
I think what we what 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 is not helpful in thinking about the EU uh, is to think of it as something very different. What I see in Europe are pretty classical political cleavages on identity, on material well-being. And we have to think of the EU more as a functioning political system. Right, okay. A bit more like the United States. Yes. So every time something happens in the US, we don't think the US is going to disappear. Mm. So we need to begin to think of the EU as something that is a relatively young political construct and social construct, but has proven, in my view, through crises, is much more robust than sometimes I read in the newspapers or equally my academic colleagues. That there, and again on the pro and anti-European, I mean, I don't regard myself as a pro-European. I regard myself who knows something about the EU and if I were asked in terms of my attitudes towards it, do I broadly think it is a good thing for this part of the of, of Europe that mm. such a thing exists called yeah. the European Union, I would say yes. Right. But I think we need to get beyond this pro and anti. We need to get yeah. beyond thinking of it very much in, you know, as a values project it is, as a peace project it is. It's also a political power project. <laughs> well, in that case, so in that context, then, Bridget, I mean, okay, I, I think most people will accept that there's no imminent danger, or likelihood, or certainly no desire for the EU to disintegrate. But there is this issue, I come back to the of fragmentation from within, and that obviously has an impact on, on the capacity of the EU to act in a, in a relatively coherent, cohesive way, no? Absolutely. It will always be a struggle for the EU because of the level of diversity. I mean, if you think about the histories, the cultures, f the experiences of state, state-making across the continent, they're very, very different. Yes. The eastern half of the continent, the western half of the continent, the large, the small. Even state traditions, the German ordo-liberalism, the French state tradition, they're very different. Yeah. And Europe can't be made in spite of that. Yes. It has to be. That's the fabric available to weave whatever can be woven from this. Right. Well, let's th take a moment to talk about and think about, or just, yes, try and envisage the, the EU without the United Kingdom as a, as a member. Um, wh what do you think are the most, the most immediate and, and most likely um, developments that will emerge as a result of the departure of the UK from the EU? Well, I think that the departure of the UK is bad for the EU and bad for the UK. And one of the real challenges, I think, is that the UK is too large to be a third country. Mm. There was an assumption in the UK narrative that because Britain was large, it could have more bespoke than anyone else. Right. The irony there was a special case. In the irony is the UK size makes it much more difficult. Mm. So you can deal with Switzerland or you could deal with Ireland if it was a non-member state or Norway. But the UK will not be given special privileges. It can't be mm. because it can take the system. It's more, it's existential. So the fact that Switzerland is not a member state of the EU is frankly neither here nor there mm. or Norway. But it's a big thing that the UK has decided to leave. So 
they're, in my view, looking to the future relationship negotiations, uh, the EU will continue to mean what it says. Right. And so if the UK removes itself from the jurisdiction, from the integrity of the four freedoms, then its economic ties with its neighbours will be reduced. Do you think, therefore, the, 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 the priorities and the focus of the EU going forward will, will change quite dramatically? One hears, as you know, um, you know, fears, say, in the business community, for example, that the EU will become more protectionist because it won't have a kind of free trade champion, deregulatory champion, that the uh, role that UK traditionally has played. Is that likely to, 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 to happen, or is there a slight overreaction there? Well, so much has been achieved already in the single market, right? And uh, and the court is always there. So, in I think that's oversold, uh, and also in relations with the world beyond, for example, with China. In my view, it's no bad thing the EU is putting it up to China. Mm. Why do I say that? Because too many Chinese companies are owned by the state, and have special treatment from the Chinese state mm. and are very good at taking your patents and your intellectual property right. and not so good at opening the market. So I'm actually, I think being strategic about China is no harm. Yeah. So if that is seen And that's a relative new development, isn't it, of course? It's the last month. Yeah, yes. But it's been bubbling for a while yeah. and in a way partly driven by Trump. Yes. It's one of the areas where, in my view, Trump is not wrong. Not wrong. Now, it's what I wouldn't advocate. Advocate is that suddenly China is seen as a pariah. That's not what. I, it's no. just it has to be fair and reciprocal. And we have to find a way to deal with it. Yeah, because they will use power, so the EU has to use its power in return, and shouldn't be naive. Well, towards the end of the year. There'll be a new European Commission in principle taking office. Uh, the five-year reign of Jean-Claude Juncker will come to an end in principle in the autumn of this year. I'm not asking you to predict, unless you want to tell me, who will be the next president of the European Commission, uh, with or without the spits and counted out and process helping things along. But more seriously, the, the next commission obviously have a new five-year mandate. If you were the president of the commission, what kind of things would you be focusing on? Is it more like business as usual? Because if it's not broken, why fix it? Or do you think the, the commission, because of all these things you've been saying earlier in this conversation, Bridget, really needs to, and the external action service by extension as well, I suppose, when we're talking about foreign policy and geopolitics, they need to kind of quite a stark reassessment of what, it, what they do. So institutions. The, the first thing I will say about the Spitzenkandidaten is that I do not anticipate that the Spitzenkandidaten from the largest EPP party will be the next president of the commission. Why do you say that? Because although the EPP will emerge as the largest party, it, together with the socialists, won't have enough to determine who the next commission president is. They won't command the majority. They just won't command the majority. And therefore, that brings either the Liberals or the Greens or both into play. So I think this will be a really interesting process post the elections right. between the European Council and the Parliament. Uh, and I think it was probably a one-off that it happened the way it did the last time. The European Council is ready and waiting this time. But also, 
the parliament itself is different. Well, you say the council, European Council, heads of state and government are, are waiting this time. They won't, they're maybe not going to be outmaneuvered as they were five years ago. Does that therefore suggest that they will have their own candidate? They can't just challenge the system if they don't have a, a preferred candidate to put forward. I suspect they will want a candidate that is acceptable to them. They will have to find a candidate acceptable to a majority in the parliament. So there will be a lot of horse trading, right. coalition building. And it'll be a far, it is a far less predictable yeah. uh, outcome, process and outcome than it was the last time. And then in terms of what the, uh, what, what should the, what should, you know, Juncker was the political commission. Yeah. That was his kind of strapline yeah. uh, from the beginning. Uh, I would say the next commission clearly must be attentive to climate yep. that's becoming every day more pressing uh, it must be attentive to a Europe that protects I think that's one of the framings of the EU now that works. Do you mean in a kind of literal kind of defence security sense or also in an every economic sense? sense? Right. Every sense. To safeguard to protect social cohesion our quality of life the way we live in the world a Europe that protects in all, and I think that's a very, I think that's been a very useful uh, framing. On the social side, as as we know, the EU budget remains extremely small. As a percentage of GNI, it's one percent broadly. Mm. Governments spend anywhere between thirty and fifty percent of the domestic GNI. So, money is a small part of the arsenal of the EU. So therefore, in thinking about what would make a difference, I have always thought that the Eurozone crisis would have been helped if there had been some sort of top-up unemployment insurance scheme to help countries with high levels of unemployment mm. or something that takes the strain off domestic social cohesion when times are bad. Right. I've heard other... Because there are all these cohesion funds which are quite well yeah, resourced. The, the cohesion money is about catch-up. Okay. It's about helping countries to improve their infrastructure. I'm talking about something more that would go directly to the people. I also think it's long past the time, and Europe can be very pivotal to this, uh, that we begin to tax mobile capital. Mm. I think the balance between the, the tax on people who work and mobile capital is gone, and so that's another area that I think would matter. There are those who would argue, for example, for a universal income in Europe. One would need to look at the economics of that, the cost, but again, could it be that the EU tops up hmm. domestic minimum wage? You know, anything that goes, instruments that would go directly to those most in need in our society. Right. That that really would help. Okay, that's a good hint and tip for the next president to, to, to listen to, Bridget. You you mentioned that the this new this current commission, the Juncker Commission, was self-styled as a political commission. What is what is what do you think they meant by that? And 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 part two of the question: Have they been successful at it? And part three of the question is: 
uh, to what extent should that kind of political commission, commission idea be hand, taken over in the next commission? So I, I think that Juncker framed it as the political commission and he saw his primary relationship with the European Parliament. In other mm. words, he derived his political mandate from the Parliament and therefore was answerable to it. Uh, he also, another element of the political commission was his emphasis, which I think was good, on priorities. Mm. So not doing everything, but... Right. I think Prioritizing. That I think that helps structure the work of the commission. Of course, the downside of the, of, of the political commission is that the commission has responsibilities that go beyond the political. It is a guardian of the treaties, it's got to watch compliance, um, it's got to be uh, an arbiter across the member states, it's got to be fair. And maybe that's where the Juncker Commission did less well. Right. Where I wonder... So the day-to-day -day management stuff. Yeah. I, I just wonder uh, how, how, how that, uh, and also uh, it got it very wrong on, on migration. Hmm. The, it, it went bold-headed for the redistributive scheme against the wishes of too many member states. So it got a qualified majority for hmm. something, hmm. but the consequence of that is it simply couldn't implement it. Right. And you that, have to have unanimity on that, or consensus on I think, that. I think you must, on issues that are that salient, regardless of what the treaty rule is, mm. you, you cannot impose something on member states against their will in really serious issues. You, you can, yes, when they don't implement European law, you take them to the, to the Court of Justice mm. and whatever. It would be a bit like saying that you initiated disciplinary procedures or compliance procedures against Sweden because it's never joined the ERMs right. and never you, you can't do this yeah. Yeah. so I think that's I think that's the example I would use where the political commission really failed very badly okay well let's finish off this this conversation Bridget by talking about the European Parliament you you've already given me summer predictions about the results of the the elections next month in terms of the EPP European People's Party centre-right and the socialist centre-left uh, losing seats both of them uh, the extent to which they will actually combined you're saying right uh, will not no longer command the majority like they currently have in again in the start in broad terms broad brush terms what do you think the the the, the, the new composition the new the look of the parliament will be post-elections? Well, we already saw in 2014 that the radical right did very well. So it went significantly up in terms of its number of seats. So for me, the que there are two questions. One is what the size of the radical right will be mm. post the next, uh, post May. And secondly, are they capable of organizing themselves? Yeah, yeah. Because they haven't been very organised in the current parliament, have they? Uh, parties, Le Pen and Farage, wanted to use the parliament to have visibility. So very always turning up for plenary, yeah. making a lot of noise. For the TV cameras. And taking the money. <laughs> but they didn't do any hard work in committees, mm. yeah. rapporteurs of reports, the hard stuff. And of course, the European parliament is a working parliament. So I, for me, a big question is, can
can the radical right organize themselves? Firstly, how big will they be? Can mm. they organize themselves? And if yes, to what purpose? Yeah. And will someone like Salvini manage to put some structure on this? He appears determined. Will Orban be finally kicked out of the EPP, which mm. would further reduce the numbers of MEPs yeah. Yeah. in the EPP? Uh, but it'll certainly be a noisier parliament, a mm. more diverse parliament. But again, I regard that as politics. Yeah. You know, I don't think, I think again, we've got to stop thinking this is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's politics. Well, I don't know if you agree with me, but I, I sense personally um, the last time around, five years ago, after the elections of 2014, that there was a certain air of complacency amongst the, the mainstream groups because the results were not very good, obviously, because these. These uh, disruptive forces were, you know, had a bigger than previous showing in in the elections. But somehow the kind of main groups coalesced, and they were quite good, at, to be fair, at marginalising these groups. Right? They were dis they were maybe not very organised, as you say, these groups, but also they were they were marginalised in terms of key positions, etc. Do you, do you think there's a there's a danger that these the main groups again, not just the, the two big groups? Two biggest groups, also the um, the the liberals, whatever they be called, post elections, and we know obviously with the element of the uh, Macron's en marche movement as as part of that group or another group, and and more, you know, that the 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 mainstream groups that they all nonetheless feel that there's, there's although they will be different, there'll be differences clearly, and these disruptive forces will be more marked. Nonetheless, that the kind of traditional forces will still be able to to command uh, the shop, as it were. I think it will entirely depend on numbers. Right. Numbers matter in politics. Yeah. So if they have the majorities and the super majorities that they need, they will continue to command the office, you know, the rapporteurs, the committees, the chairmanships and all of that. Um, but it will be a different parliament. But also for, for, for European politics, it's very dangerous if there are these voices in our political systems and they find no outlet. Okay. So I just, you know, the European Parliament and the EU will have to cope. Yeah, it's all part of its growing up process, <laughs> as you said earlier. Okay, we have to leave it there, uh, Bridget. Thank you so much for a great discussion. Bridget Lafayette, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure.